Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And boys and girls, if I can just fan my own balls for a second here, I must say I've done a pretty good job of fulfilling my mandate because over the course of, I don't know, like the last, I should say, like maybe month or two months or something like that, I think I've actually done a pretty good job of finding a balance between discussion about movies, discussion about TV shows, and discussion about comics. So you can't say that there haven't that there haven't been any improvements because you don't exactly need the memory of an elephant, whatever the hell that figure of speech is supposed to mean, but you don't exactly need the memory of an elephant to recall a time when the great majority of my episodes were all about comics and really not very much else. So, I guess you could say that this is a sign of forward progress that's being made. But anyway, basically what's going on is, uh, guys, we are coming up to, and I mean we are teetering on the brink of the theatrical release of uh, Joker, a solo, a solo Joker movie. Uh, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix. And just because of the fact that I am so fucking stoked for that movie that I I have decided that, I, you know what I want to do? I want to do a miniseries, a comic book miniseries about just a couple of different Joker comics, you know? Not necessarily a Joker through the ages sort of thing, although I think that's kind of what this thing has sort of mutated into. But... I didn't go into this thing with the idea of doing Joker stories through, well, not even all the all of the ages, just some of the ages, but whatever. Basically, I wanted to just talk about a couple of Joker comics, kind of as a half-assed tie-in to uh, Joker, the film. And so that's what we're going to be doing this week and for the next few weeks to come. So something to look forward to there. Now, as to the music for this episode, ages and ages and ages ago, just before my hiatus, right? Uh, this is back, in fact, you know what? Actually, at the time that I record, record this, it was almost exactly a year ago, August the 29th, 2018. I posted on uh, Facebook, again, almost exactly a year ago, uh, you know, in anticipation of, well, somewhat in, in anticipation of my then upcoming hiatus. I, uh, I posted on the, the uh, Trinus Magnus Punches Reality Facebook group, uh, I wrote, My podcast has a heavy dependence upon music. Some would say too heavy. But the way I see it, even if a given episode is no good, well, at least the music sounds okay, right? Anyway, been racking my brains trying to figure out what music works best for a particular iteration of a certain comic book character and finally remembered something old from many years in my past. Finding the perfect soundtrack for this, meaning this iteration of this comic book character, finding the perfect soundtrack for this required buying a CD online and ordering it from Germany and waiting over a month for it to arrive. The things I do for you people, I swear. But it's finally here. No clue when you'll hear it, because hiatus, but when you hear some psycho jazz music, you'll realize, holy crap on a cracker without the cracker? This must surely be the music which Magnus waited more than a month to receive <coughs> in the mail because it's <coughs> a freaking CD. Magnus truly is a man amongst men. What a hero, Magnus. Or you may skip the episode entirely, for all I know, because it's not like I'm a mind reader. And that was the end of my Facebook post, and so what I was cryptically referring to is the self-same music that you're hearing right now. And at least the last time I tried the background music that you're hearing right now, I mean, obviously the opening little fanfare bit at the beginning of this episode, that comes from Batman the Brave and the Bold, but the actual underscore that you're hearing right now this comes from a movie soundtrack, which, as far as I can tell, seems to be unshazamable. And so, for that reason, because it was such a pain in the pain for me to get my hands on this music, what with ordering a fucking CD from Germany, 
because of all that, I've decided, you know what? If you don't know what this music is and if this music cannot be Shazammed, I'm not telling you what it is. I had to find it, and so if you're interested in it now, you can go looking for it for yourself. Good luck! Anyway, but uh, yeah, guys, I wasn't really kidding when I said that. You know, it was really hard to think of music that would be a fit for this sort of late Golden Age era of Batman, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, in case that wasn't clear, but I'm going to be talking about a, a comic book from the... I, see, that's the thing. I don't even know what to call this era of, of Batman, because calling it the late Golden Age, I'm not really sure how accurate that is. I mean, for starters, if you say that this is in any shape, form, or fashion, the Golden Age Batman, then you're basically left in the position of having to somehow figure out how this kinder, gentler Batman of the 1950s can somehow be reconciled with the same character that we were introduced to back in the case of the Chemical Syndicate from Detective Comics number 27. Both of those, at least in theory, are equally Golden Age, but they are not really equal with each other. Now are they? Or at least they're not the same as each other, God knows. So how exactly does that work? You can't really call this this Batman of the 50s. You can't really call him the Silver Age Batman because the Silver Age hasn't even thought about starting yet at the time that this comic book was published. And on top of all of that, even if the Silver Age had started, Batman doesn't enter the Silver Age, most people agree, until 1964. This comic was published in 1951. So what the fuck is this? I don't know. So, all in all, I'm usually content with calling the Batman of the 1950s the late Golden Age Batman, with the acknowledgement that that's not exactly a perfect description. So, anyway. But that should tell you something about how excited I am about this Joker movie that I'm not letting little things like that get in my way. So, so that's that stuff. Now, moving on to some other bits of business before we get into the comic book discussion. I don't know as I'd go so far as to call uh, call this feedback that I'm talking about here. I don't know if I want to call this feedback exactly, but uh, when I released my uh, six-year anniversary episode a little while back, it earned a Facebook comment uh, from a certain listener of the show, a long-time listener of the show, as it turns out. And this guy has been a friend of the show, and as far as I can tell, a faithful listener of the show for quite some time, and so it seemed only fair to... Now of all times, the doorbell rings. Well, since we're here and we're kind of fucking around anyway, let's take a look at Ring App and just see who's here, because I just don't especially feel like getting up out of my chair unless there's some kind of a pressing need to get up out of my chair. Oh, this is a delivery. And the guy is already driving off. Hmm, how about that? Interesting. Well, anyway, uh, interesting, I guess, only to me. But uh, whatever. Some pants I ordered for work. I guess they've arrived now, so I'll get those at some point or another. But whatever. Anyway, so this listener, he posted a uh, a uh, a uh, Facebook comment to the uh, six-year anniversary episode, and... Guys, this is one of those, re in case it hasn't become clear yet, this this really is one of those reasons why you should be a member of the Trinus Magnus Punches Reality Facebook group. This is really the only social media presence that I have. In fact, come to that, it's, it's the only social media presence that I care to have. And so everything that has anything to do with my show is found on Facebook. And so if you're only listening to this show, but you're not really participating in the in the Facebook group, you really are missing out on some stuff. For example, me ranting about CDs that I have to buy from Germany, or in this case, a pretty lengthy and I would say pretty well thought out uh, Facebook comment that, uh, that a, a certain listener posted. Now, guys, I just want to be clear on something before we get into this. Normally, I wouldn't consider comments that people post on Facebook to be worthy of responding to on mic, no offense to anybody, but it's just there's so much of that stuff that I could never hope to keep track of it. That's kind of why I prefer people email their feedback, but guys, <laughs> this really was too good to be true, and just to, or, but yeah, fine, whatever, too good to be true. So, um, 
just to kind of set the table uh, on all this a little bit, I made a, a sort of a passing remark. That's how I remember it anyway. I made a passing remark in that six-year anniversary episode that I did where I suggested to you listeners that if Joel Schumacher's two Batman films came out in the modern day, I don't know that they would hit a billion dollars, but I'm pretty sure they would hit a billion dollars or come very close to it, you know? So that was based, that was, and really still is, uh, my reference point on all this. I just made that remark in passing. Just wanted to roll that out there and see what comes back to me, and boy, did something come back to me. So this was a Facebook comment that was posted by Curtis King. Again, longtime listener of the show, and I would say a, a personal friend of mine, I've met Curtis on uh, quite a quite a few occasions, actually, and uh, I don't know. He's just he, he's a good guy. He's friendly, easy to talk to, fun to be around. He's always got funny stories and stuff. So I don't know. Just all in all, I really like Curtis. He's just he, he's a uh, he's a cool guy. And so Curtis writes, "Happy anniversary, Your Excellency. What a long and strange trip it's been. Now, on to business." I take issue with your comment that if Batman and Robin uh, were released today, it would be just as big, if not a bigger hit, than it was during its original release. And actually, uh, Curtis, before we before we move forward with your Facebook comment here, I just want to clarify on something that you're saying here. If records be checked, Batman and Robin was no hit when it came out in the summer of 1997. Like, uh, I know we're, you know, that was a long time ago, and I realize that. But uh, I remember how things really went in the summer of 1997, and man, uh, the uh, the uh, critical re uh, response that uh, that Batman and Robin received was an acid bath, and uh, that was pretty bad. But man, you want to talk about uh, just a serious come down from uh, Batman Forever's uh, success? Yeah, that was Batman and Robin. So just to kind of clarify, I. I at least in my estimation, I don't really consider Batman and Robin to be a hit. I, I mean, I'm sure it probably turned a profit, but I don't think it. I don't think it's accurate, really, to say that it was any kind of hit. To tell you the truth, but anyway, getting back into uh, Curtis's comment here, uh, he says, "Let me begin by going under the assumption that your argument is based on the script, tone, and visual aesthetic of the movie remaining intact with a starring cast." of actors whose popularity at the present time is of the same stature as these actors were at the time BNR was originally released back in 1997. And Curtis, I... Yeah, we'll go with that, sure. That's fine. At the same time, any visual effects would also be brought up to date as far as technology, which, again, Curtis, another fair assessment. With all those parameters in place, I would still argue that the movie would not do as well. My reasons are threefold. Number one, fewer options at the box office. From 1990 leading up to its release in 1997, the average filmgoer, much less the comic book fan, had very few super, uh, superhero movies to use as a benchmark to compare B&R to. During that time, you saw the following comic book genre films released. Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Darkman, Spawn, The Shadow, The Crow, The Rocketeer, the Phantom, The Mask, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, and Curtis, my memory is not yet as good as it once was, but uh, wasn't TMNT 3 released in the 90s as well? I swear to think that came out when I was in the, like, I don't know, somewhere in, in junior high, but um, or maybe sixth grade. I don't know, uh, near the end of elementary school or somewhere in junior high, something like that. I don't know. Uh, Curtis goes on to say, Judge Dredd and Steel. Yeah, the one starring Shaquille O'Neal. Captain America starring Matt Salinger. And so forth. If I really wanted to get technical, I could throw in the unreleased Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie as well. This is over the span of seven years, whereas now we get several releases in this genre every year. Sure, there are some good movies uh, in that list, you know, in here, in that list that Curtis just just uh, wrote off. Sure, there are some good movies in here and some that were a lot of fun, but suffice it to say, the overall quality is lacking. Even I would rank B&R in the top tier of this group, but put it in a similar list of movies in this genre released 
since 2010, and it's drowning at or near the bottom of the list. And honestly, I mean, I, Curtis, I think that, you know, the list that you that you posted here, I mean, it's rife with a lot of subjectivities. For example, I don't remember anybody being especially fond of the Spawn movie uh, when it came out. And I certainly don't think history has been very kind to it. I mean, people, if anything, it's like people dislike it even more today than they did back then, which is really saying something, to tell you the truth. Um, the Shadow, by contrast, I think that movie, to whatever degree that uh, any Shadow property or any Shadow movie or comic or whatever, to the degree that anything to do with The Shadow ever finds an audience, I think The Shadow movie from, I want to say that was 1994, uh, that I think ultimately did find some fairly widespread acceptance, at least among the nerd uh, community, all right? So as to the mainstream, you know, like to the to the normies or the civilians or whatever you want to call them, I doubt they even know who the shadow is, much less that Alec Baldwin, uh, Baldwin one time played the shadow. But at least among our fraternity, Curtis, I really do think that movie ultimately did find its audience. Uh, Batman Returns and Batman Forever, same thing. And in fact, I'll go out on a limb and suggest that really Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, but certainly Batman Forever, history has been kind to it. Maybe not quite as kind as as history was to Batman Returns, but I still think, you know, history was pretty kind to uh, Batman Forever. Uh, the first Ninja Turtles movie, I remember loving the hell out of that uh, when that movie came out. That was a huge hit. My memory of it is that uh, it was a huge hit the year that it came out. And, you know, people can say whatever they want about the sequels, you know, the follow-ups to the first Ninja Turtles movie. But I think that first Ninja Turtles movie, I mean, it's kind of interesting how close that was in terms of narrative to the those original um, Mirage uh, comics that came out in the in uh, the 80s. So in terms of tone and characterization, well, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to deny the influence of the cartoon show, but in, but just in terms of the story, I hold that the first Ninja Turtles movie owes a huge debt to the uh, 80s Mirage comics. So anyway, on and on and on. The point is, I think a lot of those movies uh, were well, they were uh, well received even during their time, you know, and I'm not trying to split hairs with you, uh, Curtis, because I understand the point that you're trying to make. It's just, you know, you threw a lot of stuff out there and I just at least wanted to, you know, touch base with this, uh, uh, with you on this and just say that I've got a lot of affection for a lot of those movies. I mean, I've, it's been forever since I've seen Darkman, and when I saw Darkman, I I guess I just wasn't fully aware of the fact that this was kind of a shadow pastiche. Uh, basically, that uh, Sam Raimi couldn't get the rights to do the shadow, so he just made kind of a shadow knockoff and called it Darkman. Um, I wasn't really aware of that at the time, but still, I remember enjoying Darkman, you know? So, on and on. Uh, my point is that, you know, those movies... You know, they were definitely products of their time. You know what? Um, whatever. I don't want to equivocate too much on this. Just point is, I enjoyed some of that stuff. So uh, that's that's number one. My point is, I don't think those movies that you listed were as poorly received as I think you're implying in point number one here. So there's that. Uh, number two, uh, to get back to Curtis's uh, comment, he says, The lighter tone of Batman and Robin is not the same as current films in the genre. My assumption is that your comment about being R, uh, B&R being similar to the current films of this uh, genre was geared more at the films of the MCU. And yeah, Curtis, I think that would that would be a uh, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, and in fact, that's one that I stand by. But I'll circle back to that in just a minute. Curtis goes on to write, I'm basing this on the fact that their films are generally lighter in tone than most of the DCEU films, and have been overall more popular and fared better at the box office. One of the things that I feel has made the MCU movies so successful is that they cleverly balance their humor with drama. This makes them far more accessible to a wider audience. 
While there are many laugh-out-loud moments in these films, the drama is very real as well. The characters often have personal struggles, and there are nearly always serious, real-world consequences to everything going on. At the same time, I never feel like the jokes insult the audience's intelligence. This is a crime for which I feel BNR, with all of its puns and punchlines, is guilty of in spades. Unlike the 60s Adam West TV show, BNR never feels comfortable in its own skin. It tries too hard to be campy with so many jokes flying at the audience that at times that it feels like some scenes come to a halt to stop and wait for them. I'm going to put the put your comment back on pause here and say that, you know, Curtis, stuff like that, I think, really is more in the eye of the beholder. Um, I forget where exactly, but <clears throat> I either heard an interview with Joel Schumacher or I listened to an audio commentary or I read an interview or it was at some point somewhere I came across him saying that <clears throat> Batman Forever really was an attempt on his part to tell a psychologically complex uh, story, a Batman story, um, in the context of a sort of a fun action superhero blockbuster action movie, right? That was Batman Forever. For Batman and Robin, though, uh, his point was really, his, his ambition was to kind of make sort of a live-action cartoon. And so that's what he tried to do. So he didn't... So my point is, whenever he was making Batman and Robin, you know, the creative decisions that a lot of people decry were... I sometimes think people misunderstand that and think that uh, Schumacher missed the point when, honestly, I kind of wonder if maybe they are missing the point because uh, he he's on the record saying he wants this to be a live-action cartoon. You know, that's what he wants it to be. And so it's not that he got something wrong or something like that. I think this is just one of those times when the creator and the audience were sort of talking past one another. But... What I do kind of want to mention, though, is that the MCU movies, to me, and this is not to shit on anybody's favorite movie or anything. I'm just saying this is what I think. The <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me get a sip off of my uh, Coke here. My throat is uh, getting a little bit dry, and this seems like it happens you know, right around 20 or so minutes into any episode. I don't know why this always happens, but it seems like it does. And uh, I think I'm going to get a uh, couple drags off my uh, vaporizer as well. All right, so... Um, I, this isn't me like trying to you know shit on anybody's favorite movie or anything. This is just one jerk's opinion. So anyone listening, if you if you disagree with what I'm about to say, well, good for you. More power to you. I'm just telling you what I think. And you know these these newer MCU movies. I mean, they really do leave me cold. I mean, it's to the point. I'll give. Um, Infinity War and Endgame, I'll make exception for them, but for the other, for a lot of the other MCU movies that have been coming out lately, it's kind of hard to even recognize the fact that these are supposed to be action movies because it seems like there's a joke that that's coming along or some kind of humor that's coming along every couple of minutes, you know? And I think back to the first Iron Man movie. And yeah, there are some, you know, there are some, there, there's plenty of humor and whatnot going on in that movie. But at the end of the day, it's the story of how Tony Stark learned to take responsibility for his actions. And he had to go through a very serious, uh, series of struggles in order to get to that point, you know? And yeah, like I say, there's some levity along the way, but it's still, I think it's a fun story, but it's still, at its roots, a pretty serious story, you know? And I don't think I'm prepared to say that of a lot of these more recent uh, MCU movies where, again, it's like the joke is coming at most every five minutes, you know? And, it, 
it's like the movie doesn't take itself all that seriously. So why should I take it seriously? Now, some people, they hear me say stuff like that and they get triggered a little bit. And, you know, look, guys, Infinity War grossed like I think almost two billion dollars or something like that. And then Endgame, it did gross two billion dollars. I'm just some asshole with a with, with an opinion and a microphone. The public has spoken on this, all right? You can't argue with the results. Endgame made two fucking billion dollars, okay? Now, I can slice that up any way I want. The movie still made two billion dollars, guys. So the fact that I don't get into a lot of these newer MCU movies, clearly I'm in the minority on this, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I'm just saying that I don't get into uh, these new MCU movies for those reasons. And frankly, I don't see a huge difference between the type of movies that are that uh, Marvel is releasing these days and Batman and Robin. All right. Um, you you mention uh, some of your criticisms of Batman and Robin here, Curtis. A lot of those same criticisms I I can and obviously will point right back to Marvel and say they're doing it too, you know. Um when I I watched uh Thor Ragnarok um a couple of months ago and I this is one of those things where I went into this thing with my eyes open, I knew what I was getting and I was fine with it. I mean Tessa Thompson being in a you know what? Uh, there's just nothing I can say. Fuck it. Just whatever. It, it's stupid. You know, her entire participation in those movies is fucking stupid. But again, no one seems to care what I think. So, and it was, I'm not going to lie, dude. It was just a real slog getting through that because it's like, if the characters themselves don't care about the stakes of of the movie, if the story itself doesn't care about the stakes of the movie. It's like, why should I care? You know? And so it was just really hard for me to connect to uh, Ragnarok just because it's like, what are we doing here? You know, it's just, I just thought it was dumb. It was boring. It was pointless. I mean, again, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if Ragnarok earned a billion dollars or not. It earned a shitload of money. I know this. I mean, it, it, is like six or seven or eight times in profit. I mean, there's no question about that. So again, guys, if you're getting mad at me for this, remember, I'm just one jerk with an opinion and a microphone. Meanwhile, Ragnarok earned how many hundreds of millions of dollars? Or shit, maybe it earned a full billion. I don't know. But I'm what I'm saying is I'm aware of the fact that I'm in the minority on this. I'm just saying that Ragnarok kind of left me cold. So whatever you want to do with that, that's fine. I just don't get into it as much. Same thing with, I would say, probably 98 or 99% of what Marvel is releasing these days. Just not for me. So anyway, uh, Curtis goes on to say, number three, after the Nolan films and Burton's to a lesser extent, most fans expect and want a serious slash darker Batman. And Curtis, I'm going to put your email back on pause and say, I don't see any real evidence of that, man. I, I just don't. You know, maybe you're right, you know, maybe mainstream audiences and for that matter, even the core fan base, maybe they really do want a darker and more serious Batman. Okay. You, you may be right, but I'm going to tell you, I just, like I said, I just don't see a whole lot of evidence for that. I mean, I would say that Affleck's Batman, or maybe the better way to put it would be Snyder's Batman is at least as dark as anything that we saw in the Tim Burton movies or the Chris Nolan movies. And audiences just didn't seem to really warm up to that character, you know, or at least that, that iteration of, of the character. They just, for whatever, I love them. I love Zack Snyder's Batman. I mean, if I've got a regret, it's that we don't get more of Zack Snyder's Batman. But here again, I recognize that I'm in the minority And it's actually that recognition that makes me think, you know what? Maybe people are ready for a lighter Batman now, you know? Um, Maybe 
most people are thinking, you know, Chris Nolan went about as dark with Batman as you can possibly go. Whether that's true or not isn't the point. Maybe what most people are thinking is, you know, Nolan, maybe he went about as dark with Batman as anybody can go. And so maybe it's time to try something a little bit lighter for a while. I don't know. But it's just, I don't see any real evidence that uh, that wide audiences would insist on and demand a dark and serious, you know, like grim dark, uh, like uh, live action Batman feature film. I just, I don't see very much evidence for that. Um, anyway, this is supposed to be about Curtis, not me. So uh, Curtis goes on to say, very few people can argue about the impact that Nolan's Batman trilogy has had on superhero slash comic book movies. They added a legitimacy to the genre more so than even any of the MCU films have. And geez, Curtis, I mean, even I, wow, even I'm kind of shocked by that. But uh, anyway, as a result, I would also contend that these films have created a clear perception and expectation with the character in the fans, both general and comic book minds and hearts going forward. While the moodier tone and dark humor of the first two ba uh, Burton Batman films laid the foundation, the Nolan trilogy cemented it in place. The bottom line is that unless it's billed as a comedic spoof or parody, 1997's Batman and Robin, or any Batman movie of a similar tone and spirit, would, would not do well. Don't get me wrong. Despite all the negative fan bashing and overinflated pre-release Rotten Tomatoes score it would, it would no doubt receive, it might still have enough uh, curiosity factor to garner a strong opening weekend, but then it would quickly fade off into the box office sunset. Sorry for the length and for even questioning uh, uh, His Excellency's otherwise uh, questionable judgment, but that one comment really provoked me. Yeah, no kidding, Curtis. <laughs> Clearly, I got to you, so sorry about that. Um, in closing, I grant you one exception to this argument. If the current remake of BNR were directed by the legendary Shoto Brothers of Killer Clowns from Outer Space fame, then all bets are off. <laughs> All right. Well, Curtis, all right. Uh, zing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I would actually be kind of interested to see that. You know, can you just imagine what the posters would be like from the guys that brought you killer clowns from outer space? <laughs> oh, man. I actually kind of want to see that movie now. So, all right. Anyway, so, uh, wow. Golly, I am closing in on uh, 35 minutes into this episode, and I haven't started talking about the comic book yet. But uh, anyway, just to kind of cut to the chase here, finally, um, the comic book uh, that I wanted to talk about in in, in this episode, uh, this is Batman, volume number one, uh, number 63. So Batman number 63. Cover date is February 1951. Executive editor is Whitney Ellsworth. Cover artist is uh, a shit ton of people. And I just, honestly, I find this list of cover artists to be a little bit unbelievable. So I'm just going to assume, I'm, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to say that it's Dick Sprang. And if I'm wrong, sue me. Uh, writer is Bill Finger. Penciler is Dick Sprang. Inker is Charles Paris. Letterer is uh, Irish Schnapp. And just to kind of put all of this in perspective, um, guys, I'm... Obviously, I don't own an original copy of Batman number 63 from 1951. I don't own that comic, as if that doesn't go without saying. I'm actually reading this out of the greatest Joker stories ever told. And so what we can say for sure is, you know, however accurate the rest of the credits may or may not be, for sure the colorist for this story is Greg Theakston, because that's what it says on page 64 of the greatest Joker stories ever told, published in 1988. So, uh, anyway, um, I'm not actually seeing uh, the actual cover for uh, Batman number number 63. This is uh, basically a sort of like second cover. It's kind of like a splash page uh, for this story. And by the way, the name of this story is The Joker's Crime Costumes. And... Um, Actually, you know what? We'll circle back to this sort of secondary intro splash page in just a moment. But for right now, the synopsis for the Joker's crime costumes is as follows. During a charity exhibition about Batman in Gotham City, the Joker realizes that a crucial element of Batman's crime-fighting career is his array of bat suits. 
This variety of uniforms allows him to conquer every kind of situation. Because of that, the Joker decides to launch a new crime spree using various kinds of costumes. The Joker wears costumes of famous comic relief characters from various fic uh, uh, fictional stories to perform a series of daring robberies. He's pretty successful, too. Batman and Robin, uh, Batman and Robin are powerless to stop him. That is, until they corner one of the Joker's henchmen and force him to reveal clues to the Joker's next robbery. The Joker crashes the Gotham City baking fair dressed as Simple Simon. There he gets intercepted by Batman, disguised as Santa Claus, and Robin, disguised as Jack Horner. They arrest him, lock his ass up in jail, and the Joker apparently decides to never use customized uh, uniforms to commit crimes ever again. The end. So, what did I think? Uh, guys, it is no exaggeration to say that I have been a fan of this story for, uh, shit, I, I guess at this point it's going on 30 years. Uh, the Joker's crime costumes, I mean, for me, this is one of the great Joker stories of all time, you know? Uh, you can take your death of the family bullshit outside because ain't nobody got time for that. For me, the Joker's crime costumes, this is this is pretty much what the Joker should be doing. You know, there's a mischievous element to this. There's a kind of a uh, comedic element to this. But there's also a very real criminal element to what he's trying to do here. So I'll circle back to that as we go through the story. But I just wanted to get all that out there on Front Street right now, saying that, you know, yeah, this may be a less lethal version of the Joker, but at least he's true to character and he's inventive, both of which I think are important commodities for any Joker story to possess. So anyway, but uh, I promised that we talk about this little splash page here that introduces the story, the Joker's crime costumes, and it's basically Batman and Robin. It's kind of an impressionistic uh, sort of page. It's Batman and Robin basically being overwhelmed by a sea of Jokers wearing a variety of, of uh, different costumes and um, and all of that. They're both just standing there in absolute befuddlement, trying to figure out just what the fuck is going on. And I like the kind of symbolic truth of these sort of um, more impressionistic type. I guess this is a teaser page. I guess this is what we could call it. But I, I kind of like the impressionistic yet truthful elements of teaser pages like this. This is in its own weird kind of way. It's very symbolic of what happens in the story. And I just kind of like that. So, but another thing I kind of like is this sort of over the top circular narration bubble that basically it, you can almost picture it as kind of like a, uh, what you would hear in a, in a uh, movie trailer, like an old timey movie trailer basically intended to hype up the movie that you're about to see. Um, the the little narration bu uh, bubble, it says, We've all chuckled over amusing characters in books. Friar Tuck, Old King Cole, Pickwick, Simple Simon, the Connecticut Yankee, and many others. Yes, these fictional funny men are good for laughs, but are not so humorous when their identities are used for crime. <clears throat> Batman and Robin agree, but they're led a merry chase before they get the last laugh and finally expose the grim jests cloaked by the Joker's crime costumes. And I, it's just, I love this over-the-top narration. This is ah, it's just so good. And it's just kind of ham-fisted dialogue. I just dig it. This is just so good. Anyway, getting into it. Um, technically that's page one, uh, page two, this is a, uh, it's basically a, a, uh, an exhibit at a museum of a bunch of different, uh, Batman uniforms. And this is honestly, I mean, guys, we need to keep in mind, this is a very different iteration of Batman. I mean, I personally, if, if what we're talking about is like the dark gritty Batman, <clears throat> It would be a cold day in hell before he donated his uniforms to the museum so that they could be put on display. But that's not really 
out of the question for this iteration of Batman, this kind of brave and the bold uh, uh, Batman, you know, 1950s, late golden age of Batman, the smiling Batman, Gotham City's most famous citizen Batman, you know, like that type. This is very much a just a smiling do-gooder kind of Batman. And this is a Batman that I've got a, a tremendous amount of affection for. And I don't think this iteration of Batman gets the respect that I think he deserves just because it's not Frank Miller's Batman or Scott Snyder's or who the fuck ever's. And there's nothing wrong with those guys. Well, I don't know. I don't really get into Scott Snyder's Batman quite as much to tell you the truth, but whatever. The point is there's nothing wrong with that stuff. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that stuff, but we just need to keep in mind that Batman can be a lot of different things. One of which is just this kind of uh, aspirational sort of, like I say, smiling do-gooder type of Batman. He's the kind of guy that, you know what? Maybe he would donate his his uh, customized uniforms uh, to a museum so they could be put on display, you know? Maybe he would do that. And uh, there are quite a lot of things to choose from. Now, one of the most interesting ones, at least for me, this is, I think what we're supposed to infer is that this is called the fire costume. And it's it looks like it's basically an, uh, a, a completely orange and golden uh, Batman uniform. And I, I, I can't... I don't know about the rest of you, but I just I have to wonder what is the application for the fire outfit, you know? Because a lot of these other uniforms you can see where they would allow Batman to blend into to his surroundings. Um one one of the uh, uh museum goers even says Batman once wore that all white uniform to blend in with the snow. So we could capture a gang at the North Pole. So we know now what exactly these suits are, are designed to allow Batman to do. Why would he need to blend in with fire? And we never get an answer. And maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. This isn't necessary. Maybe we're not supposed to take all this stuff completely literally or overthink it too much. But, uh, you know, I do, I do sort of wonder about that. Um, there's uh, another costume, and this is somewhat blocked, you know, first by the border of the page, and then second by the narration box, which says, at a charity show in Gotham City, the public flocks to see an, exhi uh, an exhibit featuring the various crime-fighting costumes used by Batman, you know. Uh, so that narration box kind of blocks this this other costume, but it looks like it basically matches up with the color design of Superman's outfit, you know, red cape, red boots, and what looks like a blue bodysuit, but we can't really see very much of it. So we there's really not a whole lot to go on here, but I do wonder what exactly is that suit and what is the purpose of it? But here again, maybe we're not supposed to overthink it too much. So I don't know. Anyway, all in all, this is just kind of a neat little array of costumes that we see. You know, the super, this super Batman outfit that we see, uh, the fire costume, golden costume, futuristic costume, white costume. It looks like an underwater costume, maybe. This green and blue thing that we see in uh, panel one on page two. Just very cool. But as you probably remember from the story synopsis, we see the Joker... Uh, lurking around in the background, and apparently Gotham City is the kind of place where the Joker can put on a hat and a pair of sunglasses, and that does a good enough job to serve as a, a disguise so that he's, that he's not recognized and then arrested the minute he sets foot into the museum. And I don't know, I just like that. You know, like, what that says about this take on Gotham City. I just fucking love that. That is so good. And it, I guess if you want to bend spoons a little bit, one of the things I've always sort of wondered about, you know, considering how famous this story is, you know, the Joker's crime costumes, considering how famous this is and how widely read it surely must be, 
this idea of putting the Joker in a pair of sunglasses, is that where Alan Moore got the idea in The Killing Joke? Just kind of makes you wonder. I mean, because when you think about it, I mean, really, what is Alan Moore's signature move? Well, it's basically turning the Silver Age into an R-rated gross-out fest. I mean, that's that's really what he kind of made his bones doing in the 1980s. And it just, it does kind of make you wonder, you know, and this isn't exactly Silver Age, I know, but whatever. It's not the point. So anyway, moving right along, getting into pa- uh, panel three, we we see that just this one little bit in the Joker's hideout where he thinks to himself, yes, what a uh, costumes, eh? What a happy idea for a series of crimes. Ha ha. Joker, you old rascal, you are the clever one, aren't you? Ha 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 ha. And I just I kind of wish we could see more of this Joker's hideout because it looks like he's got an upside-down spade to serve as the back of a chair. He's got uh playing card themed uh, uh drapes and I don't know. I just I would love to see more of what this of what of what his hideout looks like. But I do kind of like the idea of the Joker thinking that the key to Batman's success is the versatility of his wardrobe. Yeah, uh, he, he even says, or at least he even thinks to himself, bah, Batman always gets talked about. My trouble is that I'm, my trouble is that I'm typed. People always expect me to look like myself. I, too, should have many costumes for crime. And I kind of like the idea that the Joker sees this as as he's being upstaged a little bit by, by Batman. And he kind of has a performer's thinking on this. You know, that I'm not getting any attention because I'm not dressed zany enough. Because apparently, walking around in looking like a clown in a garish purple suit robbing banks and stuff that apparently doesn't get you a whole lot of attention in Gotham city. I mean, I don't know. That's just, that's kind of hinky, I think, but, uh, I don't know. I just, I like the fact that he, he kind of has a, a, a performer's envy about this and he sees the solution to this as basically, I just need a change in clothes. That's all. And certainly he gives that a shot. Uh, because on on page three, he he basically crashes a performance of of uh, Hamlet. And he's dressed as Falstaff from. Is it Henry the fourth or is it Henry? I don't know. But anyway, some other the wrong Shakespeare play is the point. It's a really dramatic moment of Hamlet. And so the Joker basically crashes the scene dressed as Falstaff and basically just kind of makes a hash out of everything. This was supposed to be a serious and dramatic performance. And honestly, a kind of serious and dramatic moment in the play, and it gets completely destroyed. And I kind of like the fact that the Joker chose that as his as his moment. You know, that is his entry line. You know, the actual ghost was supposed to, well, not the actual ghost, but you get the idea. The actor playing the ghost was supposed to make his entrance at that moment. And so you could just kind of picture that the Joker ambushed him backstage, knocked him out, tied him up, and then took his cue to go out there, not as the ghost, but as Falstaff. And again, it's just this performer's mindset that the Joker has that he would choose that as his moment. And so I guess if we want to tie it back in with the the Joker film... Well, he's a performer, or he's at least a wannabe performer in the film, so there's your similarity, I guess. There's your connection. Now, getting into page four, what we basically... What we're basically forced to believe, if we take this page completely literally, we're basically forced to believe that the Joker went to all this trouble just to steal one diamond necklace. That's it. He went to all the trouble of building a customized sword, building a 
a Falstaff costume, uh, getting his timing perfect for uh, the uh, to uh, make a wreck of this performance of Macbeth. He went to all this trouble just to steal one necklace. And I kind of like that, you know? I like the fact that, I mean, number one, if you want to infer that he stole a bunch of other stuff too, you can. But if you want to... If you want to read this as the Joker going to all this trouble just to steal one necklace, well, again, the performer's mindset, it's not necessarily about what he steals so much as the the style and the performance of everything. You know, that's where his where his real focus is at, you know, the uh, uh, making this funny. And another thing that I that I kind of like about this iteration of the Joker is that he he somewhat sets out to confront Batman and Robin or at least he knows that he will and when you think about it I mean who is the Joker really Well yeah he's a performer but I in a deeper sense I think you could say that he's he's basically a troll you know he's an IRL troll and if you're a troll and you live in the same city as Batman. I mean, Batman is pretty much the number one guy that you'd want to fuck with. You know, I mean, this is a, I mean, if ever there was somebody out there who took himself way too seriously, it's Batman. And so as a result, if you're a troll, what you'd want to do is find a way to get under Batman's skin and just royally piss him off. And what better way to do that than committing a bunch of crimes wearing ridiculous costumes? I mean... This works on a lot of different levels for me, you know? And anyway, so sure enough, Batman and Robin swoop into action and the Joker easily makes his escape. And this goes on in the, you know, the days following there, the uh, little caption box says, this is on page five, the caption box says, there are two more robberies when the Joker costumes himself as Mr. Pickwick from the Charles Dickens novel and the Connecticut Yankee as portrayed in the book by Mark Twain. And, you know, people often, they they sometimes misuse portray when they mean depict. It's kind of like how sometimes people mix up imply and infer with one another. Well, sometimes people say portray when I think they mean to say depict. And I think the correct reading of this sentence would be, and the Connecticut Yankee as depicted in the book by Mark Twain, fucking blah, blah, blah. And we see these pictures of the Joker. He's, it's, again, very impressionistic. He's standing against a black background. There are uh, ha-ha, ho-ho, hee-hee sound effects uh, in the background behind him, and he's wearing these ridiculous costumes. He's carrying his loot around with him. And I don't know. This is, uh, it's just such a clever idea, I think, to to do a Joker story like this, where he's wearing a bunch of different costumes. But another thing is Dick Sprang's art. I mean, I just love his art. I always have. You know, I think he's one of the great Batman artists of all time. He's certainly in my... Ah, oh, fuck it. I'll just say he's in my top ten. Uh, I don't, honestly don't know who else is in my top ten, but for sure, Dick Sprang definitely belongs in there. And a good example of why, it's actually the entirety of page five where he has just such economic storytelling. And he's also got just, I think a really dynamic and captivating line style. This is for me, Dick Sprang. He is the premier Batman artist for this kind of freewheeling fun sci-fi 1950s Batman. I just really enjoy this. This is, this is great stuff. So Anyway, getting into pages uh, six and seven, the Joker, he basically uh, crashes a kind of an old-timey sort of square dance. He shows up as Old King Cole. And this is a Cole Barons square dance. Get it? The Cole Barons, C-O-A-L. He's He shows up as King Cole, C-O-L-E. It's kind of a pun, sort of a play on, play on words there. And... At at the top of page seven, he basically uh, blows into his pipe. These huge bubbles come out of it. The bubbles burst. And I get the idea that they're filled with, like, knockout gas or something. And maybe what the Joker was planning to do was steal everybody's wallet or something. I mean, I don't know. But 
we don't really get a chance to figure out what what his plan would have been. In fact, you know what? In the middle of all of this, it's not even really completely clear that he stole anything, you know? And again, this kind of feeds into my perception of the Joker as a troll. I mean, if he can commit a crime or a robbery or something like that, yeah, sure, he's happy to do it. But what he's really trying to do is, number one, beat Batman at his own game, and number two, just kind of piss Batman off a little bit, get under his skin, you know, uh, as any troll would do, you know? Or at least I think any troll would do. But there's kind of this uh, funny little moment. This is uh, page seven, panel four. Batman is uh, swinging through the air, and he uh, he kicks one of the Joker's henchmen in the chest and sends him flying butt first into a steam pipe, and you can see that his butt is getting a little bit burned on the steam pipe. It's just kind of funny, you know? And, and you know, of course, you've got joke uh, Not Joker. You've got uh, Robin making these uh, jokes as... These horrible jokes, in fact, these just awful puns, as he's uh, taking on two of the Joker, two, possibly three of the Joker's henchmen. It's not really clear. This is uh, page five, uh, or rather page seven, panel five. He swings into a table and knocks a bowl of punch into at least two, but again, possibly three, of the uh, Joker's henchmen. And he says, he called for his bowl. Here's one with punch in it. So, anyway, in the end, Batman and Robin get uh, trapped in a bubble, and it's not completely clear why it is they have to kind of bounce over into the fireplace to break free of the bubble. Uh, This is on page 8, panel 4. It looks like, or actually panels 3 and 4, it looks like... Uh, Batman and Robin's uh, hand and uh, hands and feet are stuck to the interior of, of their little bubbles here. And so is that why they can't cut their way out with a pocket knife or something? I mean, I don't know. It's not really clear. Or at least it's not clear enough. I mean, it seems like something's going on, but I don't know. But uh, anyway, they basically bounce their bubbles into the fire. That hardens the plastic in uh, two to a point such that they can uh, shatter the plastic, and that's how they end up breaking free. And again, it's not really uh, clear that the Joker stole anything from the square dance, so I just like that. You know, if he can commit the crime, he will. But really, what what he's there to do is just kind of raise hell a little bit and piss Batman off. And I kind of like that. Anyway, so... Uh, moving right along, uh, this is getting into uh, page pages 9 and 10. Batman and Robin, they intercept one of uh, the Joker's uh, henchmen, who I guess is named Soupy. And he gives the one clue that Batman and Robin need to uh, crack this case once and for all. And so sure enough... At the Gotham City annual baking fair, they intercept uh, the Joker. Uh, he showed uh, he he showed up at, disguised as uh, Simple Simon. Batman and Robin, uh, they're disguised as Santa Claus and Jack Horner, respectively. They beat the piss out of the Joker, and in the end, they end up throwing his ass in in jail and. What I kind of like about this is that it kind of, number one, it's the Joker trying to beat Batman at his own game, and then Batman beats the Joker at his own game. And so I, I kind of like that angle. It's not, it's not the, the outfit that make Bat, or outfits that make Batman and Robin who they are. They're Batman and Robin because that's just how badass they are. So there's that. I just really enjoy that. The other kind of neat thing, uh, and this is on uh, page 11, is this the origin of the giant penny that we see in the Batcave? I ask because there's a gigantic fucking penny that uh, Batman uses to, or rather that the Joker uses to do, I don't even know what, ah, oh yeah, he says, so I'll just roll through that door and I'll get myself a lot of pennies and dollar bills. So he was going to use the uh, giant penny sort of as a wrecking ball. Batman used a giant pumpkin to 
to block the penny's path, this kind of makes you think, you know, did Batman keep this giant penny as a souvenir? I mean, where else, in what other Batman story do you see a giant penny, you know? So, I don't know. It's worth asking about, I guess. Anyway, all in all, this is just a really fun and kind of innocent story. I enjoy it. I've been a fan of this story for, as I say, almost 20 years now. This is just... This is just that late Golden Age Batman that is just fun fun loving most you know this is just a fun version of batman so i don't know i really enjoy it and if you've never read this story i could not more highly recommend that you do you can find it reprinted for sure in the greatest joker stories ever told which i'm sure you can find on ebay for pretty cheap so um anyway i like i said i just i i, I love this story and i just kind of love this iteration of batman i mean i agree you know, I don't necessarily think I would want this to to be... I wouldn't want this to be Batman's eternal characterization, but boy, there is just a lot to love about this iteration of Batman. I just really, really dig it and um, highly recommend it. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me for this week. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be doing is talking about a little bit more of a grim dark kind of batman this is the return of the joker not the animated one this is the uh, return of the joker two-parter originally published in batman number 450 and 451 from 1990 but that's for next week so i think that's pretty much it for me for this week so bye everybody i will see you next week So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, 
Boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.